Chapter 12, Part 2 Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Teachers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 12, Part 2 Mary Baker Eddy Page 102 The mild forms of animal magnetism are disappearing, and its aggressive features are coming to the front. The looms of crime, hidden in the dark recesses of mortal thought, are, every hour, weaving webs more complicated and subtle. So secret are its present methods that they ensnare the age into indolence, and produce the very apathy on this subject which the criminal desires. This passage reveals the one actually dangerous thing in Christian science, the fallacy that one mind can weave a web that will work the undoing of another. This is the basis of a belief in witchcraft, and justifies the hangings at Salem. On page 103 I find this, as used in Christian science, animal magnetism or hypnotism is the specific term for error or mortal mind. It is the false belief that mind is in matter, and both evil and good, that evil is as real as goodness, and more powerful. This belief has not one quality of truth or good. It is either ignorant or malicious. The malicious form of animal magnetism ultimates in moral idiocy. The truths of immortal mind sustain man, and they annihilate the fables and mortal mind, whose flimsy and gaudy pretensions, like silly moths, singe their own wings and fall into dust. In reality there is no mortal mind, and consequently no transference of mortal thought and willpower. Page 502. Spiritually followed, the book of Genesis is the history of the untrue image of God, named a sinful mortal. This deflection of being, rightly viewed, serves the spiritual actuality of man, as given in the first chapter of Genesis, when the crude forms of human thought take on higher symbols and significations the scientifically Christian views of the universe will appear, illuminating time with the glory of eternity. I append these two passages simply as samples of inspired literature. Anyone who tries to understand such printed matter is headed for Bloomingdale. You must leave it alone absolutely, or else accept it and read it with your mental eyes closed, mumbling it with your lips, and let your mind roam like a priest reading his breviary in the smoking apartment of a Pullman car. The question then arises, was Mrs. Eddy sincere in putting forth such writings? And the answer is, she was most certainly sincere. And she was certainly sane. She was an honest woman. But she was not a clear or logical thinker, except on matters of finance and business. And consequently, 
she did not give forth a clear expression when she essayed philosophy. In order to write lucidly, you must think lucidly. Mrs. Eddy had no sense of literary values. She was absolutely devoid of humor, and humor is only the ability to detect a little thing from a big one, to perceive a wrong adjustment from a right one. Style in literature is taste, but the lack of style, taste, and humor is general in mankind. The world has produced only a few great thinkers, and one of them was Darwin, a name which Mrs. Eddy mentioned in Science and Health, with reproach. Great writers are even more rare than great thinkers, because to write one must have the ability not only to think clearly, but the knack or technical skill to use the right word, the luminous word, and so arrange, paragraph, and punctuate them, that your meaning will be clear to average minds. To say that Mrs. Eddy was not a thinker nor a writer is not an indictment of the woman, although it may be a reflection on the mental processes of the people who think she was. To say that there are two million people reading Mrs. Eddy also proves nothing, since numbers are no vindication. Over a hundred million people have kissed the big toe of St. Peter in Rome, and surely the Roman Catholic Church contains a vast number of highly educated people. The things you do not know, you do not know. And Mrs. Eddy, knowing nothing of literary style, knew nothing of literary art, her prose and her poetry are worse than ordinary. All inspirational poetry I ever read is rot, and all inspired paintings I ever saw are daubs. Mrs. Eddy should not be blamed for her limitations. Many people who are great in certain lines labor under the hallucination that they are also great in others. Matthew Arnold was a great writer, and he also thought he was a great orator. But when he spoke, his words simply fell over the footlights into the orchestra and died there. He could not reach the front row. Most comedians want to play Hamlet, and all of us have heard girls attempt to sing who thought they could sing, and who were encouraged in the hallucination by their immediate kinsfolk. Mrs. Eddy thought she could write, but unfortunately she was corroborated in her error by the applause of people who, not being able to read her book, kindly attributed the inability to their own limitations and not to hers, being prompted in this by the suggestion oft repeated by Mrs. Eddy herself. The resemblance of Mrs. Eddy's thought to that of Jesus was never noticed until Mrs. Eddy first explained the matter. Mrs. Eddy was by no means insane. Swedenborg was a civil engineer and a mathematician. He wrote forty books that are nearly as opaque as Science and Health. If you write stupidly enough, someone will surely throw up his cap and cry, Great! And others will follow the example and take up the shout, because it is much easier, as Dr. Johnson affirmed, to praise a book 
than to read and understand it. The custom of reading to a congregation in a dead or foreign language, which the listeners do not understand, has never caused any general protest from the listeners. The scoffers are the only ones who have ever noticed the incongruity, and they do not count, since they probably would not attend anyway. Next to reading from a book written in the dead language is to read from a book that is unintelligible. To listen to such makes no tax upon the intellect, and with the right accessories is soporific, restful, pleasing, and to be commended. If it does not supply an idea, it at least imparts a feeling. Mrs. Eddy's success in literature arose from the extreme muddiness of her thinking, and her opacity in expression. If she had written fairly well, her mediocrity would have been apparent to everyone. But writing absolutely without rhyme or reason, we bow before her supreme assurance. The strongest element in men is inertia. We agree, rather than fight about it. We want health, and health is what Mrs. Eddy gives to us. Therefore, science and health with key to the scriptures is the greatest book in the whole world. Sancta Simplicitas. Why not, indeed? People turn to Mrs. Eddy's book for relief, just exactly as they formerly went to the doctor for the same reason. In addition to bodily health, Mrs. Eddy gives joy, hope, worldly success, and even superior minds, seeing these practical results of Christian science move in the line of least resistance, and are quite willing to accept the book, not troubled at all about its medieval reasoning. In Ungania is a very great merchant who, not content with having the biggest store in the kingdom, aspires to the biggest university. The fact that the higher criticism is to him only a trivial matter, and really unworthy of the serious attention of a busy man, simply reveals human limitation. The specialist is created at a terrific cost, and that a person will be practical, shrewd, diplomatic and wise in managing the buying public and an army of employees and yet know and love Walt Whitman, is too much to expect. This keen and successful merchant, an absolute tyrant in certain ways, has his soft side and many pleasant qualities. Why anyone should ever question the literal truth of the Bible is beyond his comprehension. He is convinced that Leaves of Grass is an obscene book, never having read it, yet he knows nothing about the third, eleventh, and thirteenth chapters of Second Samuel, having read the book all his life. He has a pitying, patronizing smile for any one who suggests that David was a very faulty man, and that possibly Solomon was not the wisest person that ever lived. What difference does it make anyway? he testily asks. If you work for him, you have to agree with him, or else be very silent as to what you actually believe.
we often find an avowed and reiterated love for Jesus, the non-resistant, going hand in hand with a passion for war, a miser's greed, a lust for power, and a thirst for revenge. There may be a prating about righteousness while the hand of the man is feeling for his sword hilt and his eyes locating your jugular. The Ten Commandments are all rescinded in wartime. The New York Evening Post noted the peculiar fact that nine out of ten of the delegates of the Hague International Peace Conference were theological heretics. As a rule, Orthodox Christians stand for war and also for capital punishment. How do we explain these inconsistencies? We do not try to. They are simply facts in the partial development of the race. Why millionaires should patronize the memory of Jesus is something no one can understand, save that things work by antithesis. Mrs. Eddy was of the same shrewd, practical type as the merchant prince just mentioned. She was the greatest woman general of her day and generation. She possessed all the qualities that go to make successful leadership. She was self-reliant, proud, arrogant, implacable in temper, rapid in decision, unbending, shrewd, diplomatic, and a good hater. At times she dismissed her critics with simply a look. No man could dictate to her, and few dared make suggestions in her presence. To move her, the matter had to be brought to her attention in a way that led her to believe that she had discovered it herself, and of course all the credit went to her. In all Christian science churches are various selections from her writings, and beneath every one is her name. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, is the one controlling edict breathed forth by her life and words. One of her orders was that whenever one of her hymns was announced, always and forever it must be stated that it was written by Mrs. Mary Baker Eddy. Always and forever, the student, giving testimony, refers, in terms of lavish praise and fulsome adulation, to our blessed teacher, guide and exemplar, Mary Baker Eddy. God Almighty and Jesus occupy secondary positions in all Christian science meetings. Mrs. Eddy is mentioned five times to where they are once. And I would not criticize this if Mrs. Eddy had but regarded Jesus as simply a great man in history and God as an abstract term referring to the supreme intelligence in nature. But to her, God and Jesus were persons who dictated books, and very frequently she was careful to explain that her method of healing was exactly the same as that practiced by Jesus side by side with his words are hers. Passages from the Bible are read alternately with passages from science and health. If both were regarded as mere literature, this would be pardonable. But when we are told that both are 
Sacred Writ, and Damned be he who dares deny or doubt, we are simply lost in admiration for the supreme egotism of the lady. To get mad about it were vain. Let us all smile. Surely the imagination that can trace points of resemblance between Mrs. Mary Baker Eddy and Jesus, the lowly peasant of Nazareth, is admirable. Jesus was a communist in principle, having nothing, giving everything. He carried neither scrip nor purse. He wrote nothing. His indifference to place, pelf, and power is his distinguishing characteristic. Mrs. Eddy's love of power was the leading motive of her life. Her ability to bargain was beautiful. Her resorts to law and the subtleties of legal aid were all strictly modern. And the way she tied up the title to her writings by lead-pipe-cinched copyrights reveals the true instincts of Connecticut. This jealousy of her rights and the safeguarding of her interests were among the emphatic features of her life, and set her apart as the antithesis of Jesus. There is one character in history, however, to whom Mrs. Eddy bore a close resemblance, and that is Julius Caesar, who was educated for the priesthood, became a priest, and was Pope of Rome before he ventured into fighting and politics as a business. Mrs. Eddy's faith in herself, her ability to decide, her quick intuitions, the method and simplicity of her life, her passion for power, her pleasure in authorship, all these were the traits which exalted the name and fame of Caesar. The inventor of the calendar ordered that it should be known as the Julian calendar, and it is so called even unto this day. Once Carlyle sat smoking with Milburn, the blind preacher. They had been discussing the historicity of Jesus. Then they sat smoking in silence. Finally, Tomas the Techie knocked the ashes out of his long clay, T.D., and muttered half to himself and half to Milburn, Ah, a great man, a great man, but he had his limitations. The same remark can truthfully be applied to Mrs. Eddy. And about the only point that Jesus and Mrs. Eddy have in common is this matter mentioned by Carlyle. The superior shrewdness and the keen business instinct of Mrs. Eddy are seen in the use of the words Christian and science. The subtitle, With Key to the Scriptures, is particularly alluring and the use of the Oxford binding was the crowning stroke of commercial insight. Surely Mrs. Eddy must command our profound respect. She was undoubtedly a very great business genius, to say the very least. When John Henry Newman became a Catholic, he gave as a reason for his decision that he had found no place in literature or art to rest his head. His reward for not finding a place in literature or art for his head was the red hat. Let the followers of Mrs. Eddy take comfort 
in that their great teacher had plenty of high precedent for believing that Adam was created by fiat, and Eve was made from his rib, all the fiat being used, that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, and it obeyed, even when the order should have been given to the earth, that Lazarus was raised from the dead, after his body had become putrid, that witchcraft is a fact in nature, and that children can be born with the aid of one parent a little better than in the old-fashioned way. Parthenogenesis, I think they call it. These inconsistencies of absolute absurdity, existing side by side with great competence and sanity, are to be found everywhere in history. Mrs. Eddy excited the envy of the medical world in her demonstration that good health and happiness are the sure results of getting rid of the doctor habit. But they got even with her when she said that virgin motherhood would yet become the rule, and tilling of the soil would cease to be a necessity. St. Augustine thought, as did most of the early churchmen, that to do evil, that good might follow, was not only justifiable, but highly meritorious. So they preached hagiology to scare people into the narrow path of rectitude. Chapman, Alexander, Tory, Billy Sunday, and most other professional evangelists believe in and practice the same doctrine. The literary conscience was a thing known in Greece, but only recently, say within two hundred years, has it been again manifest, and as yet it is rare. It consists in the scorn and absolute refusal to write a line except that which stands for truth. The artistic conscience that refuses to paint for hire or model on order is the same. Wagner, Millet, Rembrandt, William Morris, and Ruskin are examples of men who were incapable of anything but their highest and best creative work and refused to truckle to the mercenary horde. Such men may be without conscience in a business way, and a person may be absolutely moral in all his acts of life, except in writing and talking, and here he may be slipshod and uncertain. Mrs. Eddy was beautifully lacking in the literary conscience, just as much so as was Gladstone when he attempted to reply to Ingersoll in the North American Review, and resorted to sophistry and evasion in lieu of logic. Absolute truth to Gladstone was a matter of indifference. Expediency was his shibboleth. Truth to Mrs. Eddy was also a secondary matter. The only things that really mattered were health and success, Health and success are undoubtedly great things, and well worthy of possession. But I wish to secure them only through the expression of truth. If you gag my tongue, chain my pen, and cry, Believe, and you will have health, I would say, Give me liberty, or give me death. Christian scientists ask you to buy Mrs. Eddy's book, science and health.
when the volume is handed you. You are promised health and success if you believe it's every word, and if you don't, you are threatened with moral idiocy. It is the old promise of paradise, and the threat of hell in a new guise. As for me, I decline the book. Stephen Gerard was a great merchant who had a great love of truth. But if he had been in a retail business, his zeal for truth might have been slightly modified. As a rule, the world of humanity could be divided into two parts, the practical men and the searchers for truth. Usually, the latter have nothing to lose but their head. Spinoza Galileo, Bruno, Thomas Paine, Walt Whitman, Henry Thoreau, Bronson Alcott are the pure type. Then come Theodore Parker and Ralph Waldo Emerson, crowded out of their pulpits, scorned by their alma mater, pitied by the public, yet holding true to their course. And lo, they grew rich, whereas, if they had stuck close to the shore and safety, they would have been drowned in the shallows of oblivion. On the other hand, we find in, say, the directorate of the Standard Oil Company, many men who are zealous members of the Orthodox churches, giving large sums in support of the gospel and taking an active interest in its promulgation. All of them say, with the late Mr. Morgan, My mother's religion is good enough for me. So here we get practical shrewdness combined with minds that, so far as abstract truth is concerned, are simply prairie dog towns. These men belong to a type that will cling to error as long as it is soft, easy, and popular. Most certainly these men are not fools. They are highly competent and useful in their way. But as for superstition, they find it soothing. It saves the trouble of thinking, and all their energies are needed in business. Religion to them is a social diversion with a chance of salvation on the side. Inertia does not grip them when it comes to commerce, but in religion it does. Lincoln once said that there was just one thing, and only one thing, that God Almighty could not understand, and that was the workings of the mind of an intelligent American juror. Herbert Spencer says that Sir Isaac Newton was one of the six best-educated men the world has seen. He was the first man to resolve light into its constituent elements. Voltaire says that when Newton discovered the law of gravitation, he excited the envy of the scientific world. But, adds Voltaire, when he wrote a book on the Bible prophecies, the men of science got even with him. Sir Isaac Newton defended the literal inspiration of the scriptures and was a consistent member of the Church of England. Dr. Johnson was unhappy all day if he didn't touch every tenth picket of the fence with his cane as he walked downtown.
Blackstone, the great legal commentator, believed in witchcraft, and bolstered his belief by citing the scriptural text, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, thus proving Moses a party to the superstition. Sir Matthew Hale, Chief Justice of England, did the same. Gladstone was a great statesman, and yet he believed in the mosaic account of creation, just as did Mary Baker Eddy. John Adams was a rebel from political slavery, but lived and died a worthy churchman, subsisting on canned theology, and canned in England at that. Franklin and Jefferson were rebels from both political and theological despotism, but looked leniently on leeches and apothecaries. Herbert Spencer had a free mind as regards religion, politics, economics, and sociology. Yet he was a bachelor, living in the city, belonged to a club, played billiards and smoked cigars. Physical health was out of his reach, and with all his vast knowledge, he never knew why. All through history we find violence and gentleness, ignorance and wisdom, folly and shrewdness, side by side, in the same person. The one common thing in humanity is inconsistency. To account for it were vain. We know only that it is. The very boldness of Mrs. Eddy's claims created an impetus that carried conviction. The woman certainly believed in herself, and she also believed in the power of which she was a necessary part that works for righteousness. She repudiated the supernatural, not by denying miracles, but by holding that the so-called miracles of the Bible really occurred and were perfectly natural, all according to natural law, which is the divine law. And the explanation of this divine law was her particular business. Thus did she win to her side those who were too timid in constitution to forsake forms and ceremonies and stand alone on the broad ground of rationalism. Christian science is not a religion of fight, stress, and struggle. Isn't it better to relax and rest and allow divinity to flow through us than to sit on a sharp rail and call the passers-by names in falsetto? May Irwin's motto, Don't argufy, isn't so bad as a working maxim after all. All Christian denominations are very much alike. Their differences are microscopic and recognized only by those who are immersed in them. Martin Luther only softened the expression of the Roman Catholic Church. He did not change its essence. Benjamin Franklin declared that he could not tell the difference between a Catholic and an Episcopalian. But Christian science is a complete departure from all other denominations, and while professing to be Christian is really something else. Or if it is Christian, then orthodoxy is not.
Christian science strikes right at the foot of orthodoxy, since it divides the power of Jesus with Mary Baker Eddy and affirms that Jesus was not the Saviour, but a Saviour. This is the position of Thomas Paine and all other good radicals. Christian science places Mrs. Eddy's work right alongside of the Bible. No denomination has ever put out a volume stating that the book was required in order to make the Bible intelligible. No denomination has ever put forth a person as the equal of Jesus. This has only been done by unbelievers, atheists, and freethinkers. Christianity is at last attacked in its own house and by its own household. It is thoroughly understood and admitted everywhere that there are two kinds of Christianity. One is the kind taught by the Nazarene, and the other is the institutional variety, made up of denominations which hold millions upon millions of dollars worth of property without taxation, and parade their ritual with rich and costly millinery. The one was lived by a man who had not where to lay his head, and the other is an acquirement taken over from pagan Rome, and continued largely in its pagan form even unto this day. Christian science is neither one nor the other, and the obvious pleasantry that it is neither Christian nor scientific is a jest in earnest. Christian science is a modern adaptation of all that is best in the simplicity and ascetism of Jesus. The common-sense philosophy of Benjamin Franklin, the mysticism of Swedenborg, and the bold pronunciamento of Robert Ingersoll. It is a religion of affirmation with a denial-of-matter attachment. It is a religion of this world. Jesus was a man of sorrows, but Mary Baker Eddy was a daughter of joy. And as the universal good sense of mankind holds that the best preparation for a life to come, if there is one, is to make the best of this, Christian science is meeting with a fast-growing popular acceptance. The decline of the old orthodoxy is owing to its clinging to the fallacy that the world's work is base, and nature is a trickster, luring us to our doom. Mrs. Eddy reconciled the old idea with the new, and made it mentally palatable. And this is the reason why Christian science is going to sweep the earth, and in twenty years will have but one competitor, the Roman Catholic faith. Orthodoxy, blind, blundering, stubborn, senile, is tottering. The undertaker is at the door. Indeed, the old idea of our orthodox friends, that they were preparing to die, was literally true. The undertaker's name and business address attached to the front of many a city church is a sign too subtle to overlook. Not only was the undertaker a partner of the priest, but he is now foreclosing his claim. Christian science is not final. After it has lived its day, another religion will follow, and that is the religion of common sense, 
the esoteric religion which Mrs. Eddy herself lived and practiced. As for her believers, she gave them the religion of a book, two books, the Bible and Science and Health. They want form and ritual and temples. She gave them these things, just as doctors give sweetened water to people who still demand medicine, and as if to supply the zealous converts, just out of orthodoxy, their fill of ecclesiastic husks, she built fine churches, churches rivaling the far-famed San Salute of Venice. Let them have their wish. Paganism is in their blood. They are even trying to worship her. Let them go on, and eventually they will pray not in temples, nor on this or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth, just as did Mrs. Eddy, one of the world's most successful women. Christian science is orthodox Christianity, minus medical fetish, and the fear that a belief in sin, sickness, death, and eternal punishment naturally lends, plus the joy of a natural, healthy human life. The so-called rational Christian sects preserve their devil in the form of a doctor, and hell in the shape of a hospital. My hope and expectation is that Christian science will become a rational religion instead of a one-man institution, or a religion of authority, such as it now is. Its superstitious features have doubtless been strong factors in its rapid growth, serving as stays or stocks to aid in the launching. But now, the sooner the ship floats free, the better. Christian scientists, being men and women, cannot continue to grow if fettered with an index expurgatorius and mandatory edicts and encyclicals that which binds and manacles must go, the good will remain. Christian science brings good news, and good news is always curative. Mrs. Eddy animated her patients with a new thought, the thought of harmony, the denial of disease, and the affirmation that God is good and life is beautiful. The animation thus produced is in itself the most powerful healing principle known to science. Life is born of love. Joy is a prophylactic. Christian science comes to the student as a great flood of light. His circulation becomes normal. His muscles relax. The nerves rest. Digestion acts. Elimination takes place and the person is well. Fear has congested the organs. Love, hope, and faith place them in an attitude so nature plays through them. The patient is healed. In it there is neither mystery nor miracle. It is all very simple. Let us rid ourselves of a belief in the strange and occult, the Christian Science Organization is an expediency. It is an intellectual crutch. The book is a necessity. It is a scaffolding. Yet 
he who mistakes the scaffolding for the edifice is a specialist in scaffolding. Truth can never be caught and crystallized in a formula. Also this. Truth can never be monopolized by an it or an ist. Eventually the label will be eliminated with the scaffolding, and the lumber of ritual and right will have to go. We will live truth instead of talking about it. Among Christian scientists, there are no drunkards, paupers, or gamblers. Also, there are no sick people. To them, sickness is a disgrace. Orthodox Christians get sick and gratify their sense of approbation by receiving pastoral calls and visits from the doctor and neighbors. The biblical injunction to visit the sick was never followed by Mrs. Eddy. She always decided for herself just what injunctions should be waived and what followed. Those which she did not like, she interpreted spiritually, or else glided over. The biblical statement that man's days are few and full of trouble, and also the assertion that man is prone to wickedness as the sparks fly upwards, are both very conveniently glossed. Christian scientists know the rules of health, just as most people do, but what is more, they follow them, thus avoiding the disgrace of being pointed out. They have made sickness not only taboo, but invalidism ridiculous. When things become absurd and preposterous, we abandon them. Unpopularity can do what logic is helpless to bring about. The reasoning of Christian scientists is bad, but their intuitions are right. While denying the existence of matter, no people on earth are as canny, save possibly the Quakers. A bank balance to a Christian scientist is no barren ideality. It is like falsehood to a Jesuit, a very present help in time of trouble. Sin to them consists in making too much fuss about life and talking about death. Do what you want and forget it. Quit talking about the weather, night air, miasma. Knowingly or unknowingly, Christian scientists cultivate resiliency. They are proof against drafts and microbes. Eat what you like, but not too much of it. Be moderate. Christian scientists get their joy out of their work. This is essentially hygienic. They breathe deeply, eat moderately, bathe plentifully, work industriously, and smile. This is all sternly scientific. It can never be argued down. No school of medicine has ever offered a prophylactic equal to work and good cheer. And no system of religion has ever offered a working formula for health, happiness, and success, equal to that launched by Mrs. Eddy. The science of medicine 
is a science of palliation. Christian scientists avoid the cause of sickness, and thus keep well. There is no vitality in drugs. Nature cures. Obey her. In this matter of bodily health, just a few plain rules suffice. And these rules, fairly followed, soon grow into a pleasurable habit. Fortunately, we do not have to oversee our digestion, our circulation, the work of the millions of pores that form the skin, or the action of the nerves. Folks who get fussy about their digestion and assume personal charge of their nerves have nerves and are apt to have no digestion. I have a pain in my side, said the woman who had no money to the busy doctor. Forget it, was the curt advice. Get the health habit and forget it. This is the quintessence of Christian science. Your mental attitude controls your body. Happiness is your health. There is no devil but fear. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So here endeth Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Teachers, being volume 10 of the series, as written by Albert Hubbard, edited and arranged by Fred Ban, borders and initials by Roycroft Artists, and produced by the Roycrofters at their shops, which are in East Aurora, Erie County, New York, 1922. End of chapter 12, part 2. End of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Teachers by Albert Hubbard. Recording by Luke Sartor, Berkeley, California.